You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. The scripture reading this afternoon, as well as the text for the sermon, is taken from Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We turn then to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 as we continue our series on the first letter of Paul to the church at Corinth. Listen then to the word of our God as it comes to us through the Apostle Paul. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rites. And I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel I may offer it free of charge and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, 
though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, sitting in church this morning, a strange thing happened. Pastor Bradenhoff mentioned someone in his introduction whom I also had in mind to mention to you this afternoon, Mr. David Dingwall. And no, this isn't Dingwall Sunday. I think that it happened is no accident, since we really don't believe in accidents, we believe in providence. But in any case, Pastor Bradenoff was referring to lying and to whether or not Mr. Dingwall really had claimed a pack of gum as an expense account. Well, I want to turn our attention to something else that Mr. Dingwall said during his testimony before a House of Commons committee. It was about pensions and entitlement. Mr. Dingwall, as a former MP, has a pension, a rather generous one. Mr. Dingwall, as a cabinet minister, has another pension, also very generous, thanks to you and I. And now the question is whether Mr. Dingwall should receive yet another pension, this time from the Canadian Mint. And Mr. Dingwall was asked about that, and when he was challenged, he said very proudly and loudly, I am entitled to my entitlement. In other words, it's mine. This is my right. I have every intention of taking it, and no doubt if the government will not give it, I'll talk to my lawyer, and you can't change my mind. Now, as I was hearing this, I was also pondering this text of this afternoon and this sermon. And I realized there is a world of difference between Mr. Dingwall and Mr. Paul. But there's also, you know, some common ground here. Both are under attack. Mr. Dingwall from his critics in Ottawa and elsewhere, and the Apostle Paul from his critics in Corinth. 
Both are being accused of not doing their job properly. Mr. Dingwall at the Canadian Mint in Winnipeg and the Apostle Paul as an Apostle of Jesus Christ. And both are being called to account for their actions. Mr. Dingwall for his spending and the Apostle Paul for his ministry. And so there are some similarities. However, in the end, they only go so far. For where they part company is how they respond to their critics and how they defend their work. So you ask, how different is the Apostle Paul? And how does he handle his critics? Well, let's turn to our text of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And I preached to you on the theme, Paul defends and clarifies his apostleship. And we'll see that he does so by speaking, first of all, about his provision. Secondly, about his preaching. Thirdly, about his program. And finally, about his prize. Now, beloved, ordinarily my text would be too long. But you know, when you have a text like this, you have a choice to make. Either we narrow it down and perhaps risk missing the bigger picture, or we take the whole chapter and risk missing some of the details. Well, this time I've chosen to take the latter approach. You see, I want you to get a a real sense of the totality of Paul's rebuttal to his critics. Yes, in the first part of that rebuttal, you can find in the verses 1 to 15. What are those verses about? Well, you can say they're about Paul's apostleship and the believer's duty to support him in his work, both spiritually as well as materially. In other words, the Apostle Paul here is claiming, and he uses that word, he's claiming he has rights. And that those rights have not been recognized by a lot of the Corinthian believers. Now why is that? Why are some of them so stubborn? Why are some so opposed to him? Well, it has to do with the fact that some did not want to receive him as a real, genuine apostle of Jesus Christ. Earlier in this letter, you can read about how there are divisions in the church of Corinth. Some say, I am for Apollos, I am for Peter, I am for Christ. And there were also some who said, I am for Paul. They couldn't agree on who to follow. There was this tendency to divide and conquer. They could not resist the urge to choose sides and persons. And with their attitude, they fractured the church. Yes, and with their divisive attitude, they also challenged the apostleship of the Apostle Paul. Was he really an apostle? Since when did Paul belong to the original twelve? Since when did the Apostle Paul walk and talk with the Lord Jesus on a daily basis? Isn't he just a Johnny-come-lately with a huge ego? But the Apostle Paul does not take that lying down. In the opening verses of our chapter, he reminds them that an apostle is someone who has seen and met with the risen and victorious Christ. 
And Paul has experienced that. He has seen Jesus. And in addition, he claims to have been empowered by Jesus. What else explains his success? What else explains even the coming of the Corinthians to Christ? As he says so pointedly, you people are the seal, you are the proof, you are the evidence of my apostleship in the Lord. And so Paul vigorously defends his right to be called an apostle. But he does more. For along with that office come certain rights. And one of those rights is the right to be supported materially or financially by the churches that he serves. He asks rhetorically, don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us? That's not to say he was married, but should he be married like Cephas and some of the others? Wouldn't he have that right? And then you can read that he backs up his, his assertions by a number of illustrations. There is the soldier. There is the grape farmer. There is the animal farmer. A soldier is paid by someone else to go to war. A farmer reaps benefits both from the crops that he sows as well as from the animals that he raises. By citing the law of Moses, Paul says even an ox is allowed to eat as it works. And so both people and, and animals benefit from their work. They all get to enjoy the harvest. Yes, and now Paul says to them, what about, what about us? What about Barnabas and I? We've sown a lot of spiritual seed over the years. We've traveled many, many miles. Should we not see some benefits too? Should we not reap a material harvest? Do we not, as he uses that expression in verse 12, do we not have this right of support? And even then Paul is not finished with his illustrations. So caught up is he in his argument that he adds one more. It's the priest. Read verse 13. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? You see, when all is said and done, there is one rule that emerges. Those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Verse 14. And so Paul deserves to be supported by them. And of course, Paul is not alone in this. All through the ages, this is why churches have supported their pastors. And that's not to say there is no place for a tent-making ministry as Paul was currently pursuing. But nevertheless, that's not the norm. The norm is that the bringers of the gospel live from the proceeds of the gospel. That's the general principle. 
And of course, in saying that, we're not going into all kinds of details. We're not saying how much should preachers be paid or, or what kind of benefits should they receive or not. In that regard, there are all kinds of questions and all kinds of other issues. And at the same time, I recognize as well, there is a different kind of thinking out there. There are many churches who think, maybe they don't voice it, but who actually think it's good to pay their clergy badly because that will keep them humble. And then there are churches who think that it's good to pay their church or their clergy very little because that will help them to plant more churches. And there are churches who think that that the minister be concerned with the spiritual side of life will take care of the material. Only then why is it that the material usually ends up being very little? Different churches, different thoughts. Which is best? Well, I think that in our Canadian Reformed churches we have developed a view, the right view that ministers should be provided for in such a way that they can live without due care or worry as they do their work. You can say that translates into not too little and not too much. Or if you will, it's the implementation of the advice of Agur who writes in Proverbs 30, Give me neither poverty nor riches. And so ministers deserve to be paid. And Paul and Barnabas too deserve to be paid. At considerable length and with various illustrations, Paul has proven his point. He should be supported. And the result of that rather long and intricate argument is that you all of a sudden then, towards the end of it, expect the Apostle Paul to say, so pay me. Show me the money. That's what I want. This is what you owe me. You fully expect him as a result of everything that he said to assert his rights. Isn't that what we would do? Isn't that what everyone else around us in this world does? Isn't that what Mr. Dingwall is doing? He's been so often at the public cross, but he wants to go back time and time again. He thinks it's his right. And now, beloved, look at the Apostle Paul. For he does nothing of the sort. In verse 12, he says, But we did not use this right. And in verse 15, he says it again, But I have not used any of these rights. Well, what is he doing here? Why is he making such a big deal about his rights? And then in the next breath, he dismisses them. What's going on? Well, beloved, in part, it has to do with what's happened earlier in chapter 8. You remember chapter 8, 1 Corinthians 8? 
There the Apostle Paul had dealt with that business of food being sacrificed to idols and can we eat it or not? And there the Apostle Paul had said to the strong, of course, you can eat it. You have a right to eat such meat if you want. But I want you to ask yourself whether such eating of that meat will not cause you to be a stumbling block to your weaker brothers or sisters. In other words, and that's the basic matter here, just because you have a certain right doesn't mean that you should always insist on it or exercise it. At times, and for the sake of others, you may be better to forgo it. And maybe that rings a modern bell. Someone does you wrong, and you have a right to even the score. But, should you use that right? Someone raises objections to the way that you live on the Lord's day. And you claim the right of Christian liberty. But should you implement it? Or someone expresses reservations about how you handle your wealth or spend your leisure time. And you stand on your rights. But should you be doing so? Something to think about. To seriously think about. Just because I have a right doesn't mean I should always exercise or demand that right. Mr. Dingwall should learn that for the sake of his own reputation. Now, beloved, getting back to the Apostle Paul and why he does not exercise his right to be paid and to be supported by the churches, the answer is not just to be found in chapter 8, but it's also to be found in the following verses of this chapter, the verses 16 to 18. And there the Apostle Paul says that he does not claim his right to be paid because he feels that in some way it may also hinder the great love of his life, which is the preaching of the gospel. I think Paul knew that if he accepted money or food from the Corinthian believers, some would use it against him. And they would say, oh, the only reason why Paul goes about preaching the gospel is because we pay him to do so. Or he's doing it for money. Or he's doing it to advance himself. Or he's doing it to line his own pockets. But in reality, he's doing nothing of the sort. He writes, if I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this. That in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge. 
The Apostle Paul wants to make it crystal clear that his reward for preaching is not in material things. It's not about money at all. It's about spreading the gospel far and wide, without baggage, without accusation, without hindrance of any kind. For nothing should be allowed to undermine or to taint the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord. Nothing is to be allowed to take away from the glorious news of what Christ has done, is doing, and will still do. So Paul says, keep your money. I have a right to it. But for the sake of an uncompromised gospel, I will forgo it. Now is that too not something to think about? An untainted, uncompromised gospel? Unfortunately, that is not always the perception or the impression today. You turn on your television or your radio and you listen to one of the preachers and you can always be sure of one thing. One thing. A request for money. Benny Hinn and other televangelists come to town in their corporate jets, book into five-star hotels and eat in the best restaurants in Vancouver. And what's the impression? This is all about money. The gospel is all about money. Praying on little old rich ladies and other vulnerable people. And what an indictment. How thankful I am that the voice of the church... Although far from being the slickest broadcast in town, never begs for money. And how thankful I am that this pulpit is not being used as a bully box to constantly demand that you give, give, give. For the gospel is not about enriching preachers or churches. It's about the salvation of Jesus Christ and, and spreading it unpolluted, untainted, undefiled, without baggage. And beloved, that's what Paul worked for and longed for and lived for. And so when it comes to the preaching of Christ, the Apostle Paul says, I'm free. No one can accuse me of underhanded ways or of ulterior motives. No one. But is he really free? No. For beloved, while he's free from people's money, he is not free when it comes to the program and the agenda of his life. And what is that? Well, it's summed up best in verse 19, and in the words, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. 
Paul's free, but yet he considers himself a slave. A slave to what? A slave to the gospel. A slave to, to winning others. Five times that word win pops up in the verses 19 to 22. And it's good to remember that. Some years ago, I was at a general synod and the translation of the Heidelberg Catechism was on the agenda. And then in the process of the discussion, one of my colleagues made a lot of noise about the last words of answer 86, that by our godly walk we may win our neighbors for Christ. And he said we shouldn't use that word win because it sounded too Arminian. As if we can somehow in and of ourselves use our powers of persuasion over our unbelieving neighbors to get them to believe in Christ. Now I know and I think you know what he was getting at, but still he was mistaken. Read these verses over and, and hear what Paul writes. To win as many as possible, verse 19. To win the Jews, verse 20. To win those under the law. To win those not having the law. To win the weak. Paul's program is to win, win, win. He wants to win. At all costs. In order to win his fellow Jews, he kept going to the synagogue searching for opportunities. In order to win those Jews who kept very strictly to the provisions of the law relating to unclean and clean and special days, he would do the same thing among them. In order to win the Gentiles, he would accommodate himself to their culture and to their customs. In order to win the weak, he would live among them as someone who was poor, weak, and vulnerable. And perhaps his approach is best summarized by the words of verse 22, I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. Here, win has become save. The Apostle Paul wins to save. And so you ask, why then is 1 Corinthians 9 not listed among the biblical footnotes of answer 86? Perhaps that's something to add the next time the translation or edition of the Catechism is under discussion. But in addition to something else, here are some great lessons to be learned for the spreading of the gospel. Number one, never come across in a conceited, superior, know-it-all kind of manner. And number two, always look for common ground between yourself and your hearers. And number three, respect those you are talking to and dealing with. And number four, acquaint yourself with their culture and their outlooks and their needs. And number five, pray 
for openings to bring the gospel message. For beloved, the gospel needs to go out. And here the Apostle Paul shows us how we too can contribute to its spread and to its advancement. For it are not just ancient apostles who are in the business of winning. We all are. We all have a prophetic calling, don't we? Evangelism is not allowed to become simply the hobby of a few. No, it must be an integral part of the Christian life of each and every one of us. Or as the Catechism makes so very clear, it plays a vital role in how we express our thankfulness to God. One of the proofs that you really and truly are a thankful, grateful disciple of Jesus Christ one of the proofs that you really have been bowled over by the grace of God is that you go out of your way to win others for the Lord. Yes, and if we realize this and are active in this, we're also into something else. You may call it spiritual athletics, if you like. For look, in the last verses of our chapter, the Apostle Paul writes about a race and a prize. And he says the Christian life is actually like a race. The moment we are won over to Christ, the running begins and it doesn't stop. The training, the competition, the running, it's all a continuous affair. There is this constant calling to live a holy life and to live a life that advertises Christ. You see, the Apostle Paul says, this is not an aimless life. This is not a confused life. This is not a muddled life. No, this is a focused life. A life that seeks to win others for Christ. And for his kingdom. Well now, beloved, if that is the thrust of our life, if that's really a burning desire within us, there's a prize that awaits us. Paul speaks repeatedly about it here. He speaks about it elsewhere. And you might wonder, why does he speak about a prize? Doesn't that sound kind of Arminian as well, or maybe kind of game show-like? Well, beloved, he speaks about a prize because it's part of the gospel, because even more it comes from the Lord of the gospel. Do you remember what the risen Christ wrote to the seven churches of Asia Minor? Seven letters. Every letter ends with a prize or promise. Ephesus, I give the right to eat of the tree of life. Smyrna, I give the right not to be hurt at all by the second deaths. Pergamon, 
I give a white stone with a new name written on it, Thyatira. I will give him authority over the nations. I will give him the morning star, Sardis. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. Philadelphia. I will write on him my new name. And even Laodicea. I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne. Seven churches, seven promises, and together those promises make for an incomprehensible, glorious price. And that's why, beloved, in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, the apostle almost concludes by saying, so, so run in such a way as to get the price. For here is an apostleship worth defending. Here's a gospel worth spreading. Here's a life worth living. And here is a prize worth winning. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.